Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Today's podcast is brought to you by the book, If You're Out There, part whip smart suspense tale, part touching story of friendship. No one knows Priya better than her best friend, Zan, which is exactly why she's convinced something is disturbingly wrong when she ghosts her, even as everyone insists she's fine. Becky Albertalli, New York Times bestselling author of What If It's Us, praises funny, engrossing, and one of a kind. If You're Out There completely swept me away. If You're Out There is available wherever books or audiobooks are sold. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime review podcast that digs into podcasts, pop culture, and this week we'll talk about last night's premiere of the four-part HBO documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed. And in the second half of the show, we'll review the powerful documentary that's got everyone talking about the legacy of the king of pop. It's called Leaving Neverland. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you, Kevin. Nice to have you down here in the basement closet studio. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and resident rage walker, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yeah, my rage walking is uh, climbing this week with all that we've been listening to and watching. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon-exclusive book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Now, speaking of our Patreon-exclusive book club, you are recording one this week. What is a book that's going to be talked about for the episode that's going to be coming out on Patreon soon? It is called The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman, and it's about a uh, child abduction case like in the 1940s that Sarah Weinman sort of makes the case is sort of a model for Lolita. Hmm. Mm. Incidentally, we know her. Yes, I happened to have lunch with Sarah Weinman when she was finishing that book. Oh. Did she tell you how it turned out? No, but wow. she was at, she was in the McDowell Colony here in New Hampshire, and what we is met that? up. It's like a place for artists to finish their projects. It was really oh. lovely to meet her. She's walking so it's like an artist commune where people get to walk around and and finish their projects. Robes and. They bring you so, lunches like the, and stuff. Like the Rajneeshis? No, no, it's okay. not like the Rajneeshis. It's really much more of a hippy-dippy place where you can apply to go and finish your stuff. And lots of famous people go there to do their What's stuff. What's it called? It's called the McDowell oh. Colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire. It's in Peterborough. Yeah. yeah it's, it's famous, cool. Laura. It's famous. Oh. 
Anyway. Because it looks like we have to start the McDowell podcast. Yeah, because each artist gets like a little house and they get to like do their stuff in the house. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you could go to house. But they're very protective of the people working there doing their stuff. Like they have one open house where you Mm -hmm. can go and meet the people. But like the whole deal is like you're not supposed to go bother the people whether they're doing their stuff. That's the whole point. Of them going there. (laughs) Wow. I applied. Sounds like a good escape. uh, You applied for that, Toby? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and it, the thing is, like, you apply, and if you don't, if you don't get in, you're not allowed to apply for a couple more years. They're like really strict about That's it. That's right. It's very fancy. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Don't apply again. Well, speaking of Patreon, one other quick thing that I wanted to mention is that we do now have the Crime Writers on After Show podcast on Patreon. It is lit. It is what is happening. And this week, because we have so much to talk about on this week's podcast, our After Show is going to comprise two amazing true crime updates that we don't have time to talk about in our show this week. And if any of you have never been tempted to join our Patreon before, I just want to let you know, <laughs> Lara Bricker is going to lose her mind no. during both of these true crime updates. So this would be a yeah. good week to join us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Check out the after show for this week's podcast. And then you will get to enjoy Lara Bricker losing her mind. <laughs> Over two true crime <laughs> updates. You know, I'm not sure Fireman Ken would say that's something to pay for, but, um, you know, the rest of the world might. <laughs> <laughs> we're exploiting Laura's rage for cash is what we're doing that's right okay. now. That's okay. That's okay. I'll lose my shit. That's, don't worry, because I'm already fired up. And Kevin, you have one other thing you want to talk about with regard to our Patreon folks, right? Yeah. Um, we are going on the road, guys. Yes. Well, like not on the road, but we're making one stop. Yep. We're going to be in Nashville at the end of May for Pod X. It's the uh, great podcast convention where you'll get to see all of your favorite podcasters. It's a fan convention. It's, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, and it's not just Rebecca and I. Toby and Laura are coming too. That's right. I have my cowboy boots ready. I can't wait. Maybe we're going to do some line dancing because I think Toby might be a big closet line dancer and we're going to find out while we're in Nashville. If we find out that Toby is a closet line dancer, it will be the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of this podcast. Well, you're going to hear more about all the great things that are going to be happening at PodX. You can check out their website at podxpodx.com and get the latest updates on what's going on in social media. You can get 10% off any ticket by entering the code CRIME. Crime. So it's podx.com slash crime. We're entering code CRIME at checkout. And we're also going to be giving away to a Patreon supporter. A lucky Patreon supporter. listener. We're going to give, you away, give away two free tickets to join us at PodX. Mm, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. Another reason to join us at patreon.com slash partners crime media. All right. Are we done with the shameless plugging part of the show now? I think so. Because we have a lot to do. And it's time for our main event. When you are working on a case that you think is a wrongful conviction, you're only on one side, and that side is getting to the truth. We're going to be spending the next four weeks discussing each new episode of the HBO series, The Case Against Adnan Syed. Episode one skips past the podcast serial and returns to the backstory of the high school life of both Adnan Syed and murder victim Heyman Lee. It also teases out that since the podcast, advocates and private investigators have been moving forward with efforts to exonerate him, perhaps with new evidence. Serial was the first time that I was able to see the case from the perspective of other people. What I realized then was that Serial, at least, 
was not going to be a story that was going to exonerate him. And that in the absence of a real smoking gun evidence of his innocence or someone else's guilt, that this ambiguity would always haunt us. Consider the case against Adnan Syed like a favorite book that's been turned into a movie. While you may already know about the facts cover sheets and the liver mortis, tens of millions of people who only listen to Serial do not. Part one, Call for Bidden Love, shows that much of that ground will be covered, plus a little bit extra thrown in that's going to advance the story. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for part one of the case against Adnan Syed. So to remain spoiler free, if you haven't yet checked it out, go to the time code in our show notes to hear our letter grade reviews for this first episode of the documentary. So the first thing that I wanted to mention uh, in watching this documentary is there is something jarring in kind of a wonderful way when something that is only audio, you know, the people, the places, just seeing it for the first time, especially like on HBO, it's like jarring and wonderful, right, Kevin? You mean like watching our Facebook Live broadcast? <laughs> no, it's like our friend Rabia, who we know in person, but who most people only know her mm-hmm. voice, or like seeing the characters in the podcast from Serial, like seeing, you know, Christy and Aisha, seeing like yeah. trial tape of Christina Gutierrez, like, and seeing, seeing Leakin Park, seeing the high school, like, that is jarring yeah. and cool in a way, right? Yeah, I don't know if jarring, but it's actually very enlightening because you do know an awful lot about it. And it is like, you know, having read a book and then seeing a photograph mm. of the places uh, being described. Yeah, I mean, I think that helps us advance the story. And we have to remember there are tens of millions of people that listen to Serial and didn't consume another bit of information Correct. about this case. Yep. So you're right, they don't know the things that we know. And unlike when Investigation Discovery did this case, which it was like such a watered down, dumbed down version. It's it's like for people who heard there was something but never listened to the podcast. This is for people who have listened to the podcast and want to know what's next. And they may or may not know about all the other developments that have happened in court and on different podcasts and whatnot. But I think that having at least watched episode one, that it's going to be able to deliver something for both of those audiences. I think so, too, because yeah. I know everything because I produce Undisclosed and I saw and heard things and met people that I had never really thought about or thought at this kind of thing about. I think I think it was fascinating. Laura, I know that you enjoyed the visual experience as well, right? I did. I, I loved, um, you know, right off the bat, you know, seeing Adnan's mom and like seeing that she was running her daycare and just her with the little kids and then his two brothers and his dad and. Mr. Beans. Yes. Mr. Oh Beans. my God. Mr. Beans had a cameo. Um, so I, I liked seeing all these people and I also liked seeing them then and now. That was the part that I really loved is like you're seeing the high school yearbook photos and maybe like the early trial testimony or whatever. And then you're seeing them now as they're being interviewed as they've aged and what they currently look like. And that was that was really fascinating to me. She was just so light and bubbly and it was really hard to be in a bad mood around her. But if I had to break it down to one word, I'd say goofy is the, <laughs> the best one. Whatever she was into, she was very into if it was her relationship like she would talk about it in such glowing flowery terms or playing field hockey or lacrosse when we come off in the huddles 
How about Rabia on WBAL 1999? Yes. Oh Look at your curly hair, Rabia. <laughs> <laughs> Toby liked the flowing locks as well. He made a note of that in his notes to me. <laughs> Toby, I have a question for you because one of the things that struck me about watching this uh, first episode, which, by the way, has a super corny title, it's Forbidden Love, is that we get a really, I think that Serial, you know, maybe tried to do this, but it ended up being much flatter than this, a really full portrait of Adnan Syed and Heyman Lee as teenagers and their social circle and the way they actually lived. What did you think about that, Toby? I, I agree with you. Like, I think they did a much better job. I, I don't know, and maybe it was just me, but as Serial kind of went along, I think I sort of lost track of how young everybody involved in it was, mm. you know, uh, because it seemed because you're getting a lot of Adnan talking, you know, 15 years later and other people talking 15 years later, you know, just seeing the pictures of them and a little bit more about sort of their social scene and seeing pictures of, you know, them and their friends in high school. It kind of contextualized it in a, in a way that was beyond just sort of, you know, serial seemed to boil down to eventually sort of Jay and Adnan's sort of voyage that afternoon and what, what they could prove happened and what, what didn't happen. And here it seemed like more that it's within a setting of a wide social scene that, you know, Adnan was definitely part of and Jay was less of a part of and... Uh, you kind of got a sense that they were, you know, these these were, you know, the honors kids and they're sort of preppy and and at the same time having these pressures put on them by parents who were, you know, I guess, were they both immigrants yes. or, or first generation? Yes. Yeah. So it's it yeah. kind of this weird, it's this kind of weird mix of sort of typical high school kids and achievers, but then also this other sort of cultural factor that that obviously played quite a bit of a part. Yeah, I actually think this is something that the documentary does that Serial touched on, but I think Serial's focus on the immigrant story here was really a base, kind of based around the accusations against Adnan. Like, it was a focus there. They did talk about, you know, him keeping secrets from his parents and keeping the relationship secret, and they talked about it through this lens of, like, this quote, you know, forbidden and sneaking around thing. I think the documentary does a real service to these dueling immigrant stories. We have, yeah. you know, Heyman Lee comes from an immigrant family. Adnan Syed comes from an immigrant family. They're both first-generation Americans. They're both trying to fit in in these in this high school cast structure and, like, living their lives. And they both keep, both of them, keep their social circles totally separate from their home lives. And I don't feel like serial necessarily did that on Hayes' side as much. But to me, it explains so much more about some of the dynamics of the relationship that ultimately get used against Adnan Syed in his legal case. Laura, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this episode for me actually gave, you know, even though, like you said, we we know what happened, we know the details, we know the story, it gave me a, really a much more complete picture of the relationship. Like, I felt like I had a much better understanding. I liked the use of the graphics that they used when they were using her diary to fill in details. But I, I really felt like I understood 
what the challenges of this relationship were. You know, she, her family would let her date, but only if they could meet the family of who she was dating and his family. I mean, I really thought they did a great job with this, like the mothers at the mall that were like, you know, the hunting down the ki- the <laughs> yes. aunties and like, we see you. And, uh, you know, and even, and even when Adnan went to the prom and came home and like threw his prom king crown under the stairs and his mom's like, oh, what are you doing? It's 1 a.m. He's like, oh, just hanging out. And he had to hide that. So I really felt like I had a much, uh, you know, a deeper understanding of the dynamics of, you know, not only the relationship, but the family dynamics. Yeah. Now, Kevin, I want to talk about those animation sequences. First of all, I'll just tell you, I think they were beautifully done and really appropriate and good. You know, one of the things that's interesting is like in Serial, we don't have either Adnan except on the phone. And we don't have Hay, obviously, because she died. Except for snippets of her diary. And the documentary uh, uses more of her diary and brings it to life with these animation sequences, which is a visual that you could, it was just a choice. Rather than just panning over photos, they made something. And really put her in the frame using this animation and using more of the diaries. And I think the diaries might be controversial out there on the internet. People like don't think it's cool. What do you think? I just want to know what you think about the diaries and about these animation sequences. Well, I did like the rotoscope animation technique. And there are a lot of ways that documentarians sometimes do this. You know, we have a lot of, most of the time it's like a reenactment with actors and it looks like they did you know use actors for rotoscoping but it it just by making it an animation it made it all not just pardon the pun illustrative but also visually something different but helped advance you know in a really good way uh the story that's being told both serial and case against Adnan Syed use a lot of the same passages but that's because they are important passages talking about the prom talking about why their relationship fell apart because of sort of these cultural pressures and, you know, some things that in the diary that, you know, police and prosecutors thought were relevant to maybe providing a motive or some insight as to why Adnan would have killed Hay. And so I thought that that was well done. And I think it was better than, than just having, you know, like in Syria where Sarah was reading them, I thought that this was a better way of presenting them, at least, you know, maximizing the medium. I do remember that Sarah got a lot of criticism for the way that she handled the diaries, you know, also some accusations of being sort of classist, uh, that, you know, the it's a, a white girl just kind of being a tourist in an Asian girl's life. And, I, you know, it was... It was wrapped up in a sort of a lot of controversy, which, uh, you know, I don't know if this avoids it, but I think it's important because it's the only it's the only thing that we have really of Hayes voice of her telling her own story, you know, and as opposed to other people interpreting for her. It is the only thing that we hear in her voice, but I don't know if that was really something that was meant for other people to hear, if you know what I mean. I don't disagree. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy is. Right. Right. So I I have some problems with it in terms of it seems like I don't know if her parents were like yeah go ahead and do whatever you want with their diary people don't want people reading their diaries much less like broadcasting it to millions and millions of people I understand the the draw for doing it but I think like I would feel a little weird like if I had that and then I was just gonna like broadcast it to everybody Hmm. and I don't know if they would say well you know serial's already done it so you know the cat's out of the bag 
but um, I'm not entirely comfortable with it, I guess. I'm comfortable with it for a couple of reasons. One, it's an evidence. It's a piece of evidence that was yeah. used to convict somebody. The diary is actually like in evidence. It's a public document. Yeah. Two, I don't think that, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Toby, but I think the same people who make this argument, not what you just said, Toby, but the sort of other argument that is used around this whole diary and Heyman Lee stuff, are the same people who say... This story has now become about freeing Anand Sayed, but what about Heyman Lee? Everybody always forgets about the victim. Everybody always wants to tell the story of the person who I probably think is guilty, who's convicted of this thing. And this is the a living document that actually is able to put her in the story. Like, we get to know her. And specifically, I find it very poignant because of the way she wrote the diary. She wrote it as if it was intended for other people to read. She wrote things like, I wait, I forgot to tell you about XYZ. She wrote it almost like like Walt Whitman wrote, like in knowing that people would be reading his thing in the future. It's written in that voice. And whether or not, you know, she intended she obviously didn't intend to get mm, murdered well, and know. have her thing read in an yeah. HBO documentary. But to me it's like it's A in evidence, which makes it okay, but it is it's fascinating and interesting to me that she wrote it in that specific voice because it does feel like we have an opportunity to get to know her in her own voice. And that is unique and beautiful in a way. Yeah. I guess I somewhat don't agree in that. I think a lot of people write their diaries as if it has an audience, but the audience is actually themselves. Mm -hmm. And then again, like even though it's evidence, you know, it, I I just feel like there's other ways of getting at, I mean, they talk to all her friends and stuff, and and that seems like that's another way you could do it. I mean, it doesn't, like, ruin anything for me, but I think it's an interesting choice that hopefully they they put some thought into before they they did it. Instead of just saying, well, it's here, we'll we'll just go with it. I don't know. I think without the diary and without her own words, we really would have, like, lost so much of this story. And, and, you know, and when you write true crime or report true crime. I mean, the first thing you do, you know, one of the things you do, you go to the courthouse and you see what you can get for transcripts and you see what's in evidence. And, you know, that may be in this case, a diary. It might be letters between people. It might be like phone call records between people. Facebook posts. Yeah. And that's all in the public domain once it has been introduced at court. And it may, you know, morally, you may feel like, I'm not so sure about that. But it's it's all out there at that point. So, you know, it in this case, it really helped to give, I mean, for me, it really brought it to life, especially when they used her words with the animation. It just, it lent this whole different quality to the love story that I didn't really get in Serial. I mean, it just seemed so, like, you could kind of feel like this lighthearted high school, like it was just so different to me in a way that maybe I hadn't thought about it before because it just gave it a much richer context. One last thought, and then we can move on to other parts of this, is just that, and I'll just be cold-blooded here as a, as a nonfiction writer. Yeah. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Right. And so if that yeah. means that you go and you, you, you use this because it's the best source material to tell her story, then 
That's what you have to do. We couldn't have written Darkheart without reading 800 pages of Facebook private so Facebook much for, messages. There's so much from um, yep. our little secret, yep. uh, you know, real diaries yep. and stuff, and letters and things. And yep. it's just it's the only way to know. I, I get Toby's point, and I guess we'll probably have different views on that. But that's I think okay. that I you think have to. Have I think views. you have to do that. I don't. You, just to have her friend say, "Yes, yeah, she really liked Adnan," and then, "Well, she really hated Adnan." Who do you believe? You right. Gotta, you see her own words. Well, we have some other uh, potentially controversial things. I just want to, before I get to one of the other difficult ones, I want to mention one that I'd love to just get your guys' temperature on. Uh, Hope Schaub, who's a teacher feature in the documentary, who I think is touched on in Serial, but certainly there's a lot on Undisclosed about her. French teacher and also was very young teacher in 1999 and was one of these teachers that was like friends with her students, like very obviously. You can tell <laughs> by the way it's like kind of weird. I was asked by the detectives, being that I was younger in age and close to a lot of the circle that she ran in, if I would make up some questions that I could give to the girls to kind of ask around to see if any of the Magnet students knew what was going on. And we should mention briefly, by the way, this documentary was optioned from Rabia's book, but diverges tremendously from Rabia's book in, in that... This was a documentarian who came to the story, took this as source material, and then did some original stuff. And so, like, the Hope Shop face-to-face interview certainly is not in Robbie's book. Heyman Lee's friend of the family interview is certainly not in Robbie's book. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more here than just Robbie's take and what she would have wanted it to I mean, it's really not a one-sided thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the Hope Shop thing is a great instance of that because she does emerge as a major character in this first episode – and talks about her relationship with Hay, and then talks about how she was an agent of the police interviewing kids in yeah. the school and reporting back to them. Laura, I would love to know your thoughts on that. True Detective season three? Is she going to write a book next? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it, that was really interesting to me because it was, uh, that seemed a little bit uh, out of the bounds of what you might expect the police to do. And I I understand, like I would see the police, uh, what would seem more appropriate is like, hey, you know, are you hearing anything around the school? Are there any kids you think we should talk to that you think might know more information? Not, hey, here's some, you know, why don't you go question the kids on your own? That that definitely surprised me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember from Undisclosed, Adnan confronting her and saying, you know, don't yeah. do this. Like, don't ask people questions about me was used against him at his trial. And when you mm-hmm. hear it in the documentary, it's like so reasonable that he would be like, why are you doing this? Like, you're my teacher. Yeah. Why are you asking my friends questions? Yeah. <laughs> like that's it's weird. Yeah, it was very weird. So another thing I want to mention, um, a character in Serial who does not have a name suddenly has a name in this documentary. Mr. S is actually Alonzo Sellers. And we actually see him on the witness stand in mm-hmm. the documentary. And he is the person, obviously, who um, found Heyman Lee's body, reported it to the police, and he has his own story around it. And we see him on the stand, sort of combative, unable to answer those questions. Listen to Ms. Gutierrez. We have some questions for you. Mr. Sellers, let me direct your attention back to February the 9th, 1999. Do you recall that day? I don't recall that day. I don't know what you said. Well, sir, you recall the day that you found the body in Lincoln Park, oh, don't you? Yes, okay, I recall that, that day. That was now. a pretty important day for you, was it not? Objection. If you explain that, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. And then they used that as an interesting way to bring in one of the detectives in this case, Detective Massey, which mm-hmm. I found fascinating. I'm like, we've got cops. Alonzo Sellers, do you believe that he found the body the way he found it? 
have nothing to support that he didn't. Don't think he wasn't looked at. Kevin, were you surprised to see the police, a representative of the police, show up in yeah, the story? Yeah, actually, actually, I was. I, you know, considering the controversy around this and the, and the criticism uh, that was laid on the Baltimore Police Department and certain detectives individually, I was a little surprised to see uh, someone step out. And I think transparency is good. So, you know, let's see where this goes. But he also, I think, cast some doubt on the veracity of Mr. S's Alonzo Sellers claims around how he found the body. They die, they ask him, do you think this story is true? And he's like, eh. <laughs> which I found like, wait, what? Like, isn't this a cornerstone yeah. of the case? Isn't this one of the facts yeah. of the case? I have to say, I was kind of surprised to see police involved, but I thought it was good. I was, I was happy to see police involved. I was also happy to see somebody representing Hayes family involved. But I'm, I'm curious. I, I was wondering, is this police officer retired? Is that how he was able to take part in this? Or did he just like go rogue and say, hey, I'm going to be on HBO? I, I'm, I'm a little, <laughs> I want to know a little more about how it was that they got this guy to participate. It was certainly very interesting. Now, another thing that Detective Massey talked about, and this documentarians brought it up and asked him about it, is a big topic around this case and a controversial topic around this case, certainly around the coverage of this case. And that is Hay Min Lee's boyfriend, Don, who in this gets a name. His name is Don Kleindenst which I no longer feel like I can't say because it's been (laughs) said in a documentary that's been on HBO. The cop, again, Massey, comfortably puts him in the frame saying, yeah, we looked at him. We considered him. You know, he may have done it. We only need 51 percent to arrest. I was like, wait, what? But now the documentary feels comfortable now trying to get an interview with him. I've been disabled since I was 23 and haven't been able to work. I'm 38 now. I don't expect to live to see 50. My next 12 years basically is making sure that my wife and kids take care of not worrying about whether anybody believes my alibi. Most people don't have the resources you do to track me down. Toby, I know that you are not fully comfortable with this turn the documentary took, and I'd love to give you the chance to talk about that. Yeah, well, I I mean, I think there's, like, I hope they have something more than what you see in episode one, and I assume they do. But it seems as though if you're going to bring up somebody's name and sort of insinuate that they might be involved in something, I hope they've got some stuff to really make it seem plausible. So they they mention his name, and then they say he's from, um, I'm going to forget the name of the county, but they say he's from some county. And then the immediate visual they show is a house with a Confederate flag flying. Mm. And I was just like, oh, boy, here we go. And so from th- from then on, it seems like without going too like over the edge, I mean, there's just a, a fair amount of innuendo. And then the conversation they have with them is basically like, I don't, I'm dying. I'm, I'm trying to do all this other stuff. I don't really care if anybody believes my alibi or not. At a minimum, people who are kind of following this, there's going to be a week where people are like, that dude seems like he could definitely have done it. Hmm. You know, who knows what's going to happen in the next few episodes, but. You know, it's it's not the first time that we've listened to a podcast or or watched a property where something like this has happened. It seems like you're you're taking on a lot of responsibility when you're putting somebody who hasn't been identified as a suspect as a suspect based on a documentary or a podcast or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that always makes me a little 
a little uncomfortable. Well, it is an uncomfortable situation. And one of the really wonderful things that they put in the documentary is that one of the most circumspect people about this is Rabia. She, in her scene with the private detective, says, I don't want what happened to Adnan to happen to somebody else. Like, I don't want it to be, you know, whatever she Based might... Based on someone's reaction. Yeah, whatever she yeah. might feel about whether or not Don might be culpable after the whole time card thing came out. She's also not willing, on camera especially, to say, yeah, it's him, it's him, go after... I mean, she's just like, that. It's, it also wouldn't be right without proving it, without, you know, knowing more. Yeah, I don't know, like, what more of Don we're going to see in the next three episodes... But I, I, I think, doubt we're going to see more of Don or see him physically. Well, but but how about the Don storyline? Let me say that right, because yeah. yeah, he definitely, you know, they say like when we're looking at everybody, the current boyfriend is somebody you have to look at, and then they ask the question, well, why? If you're looking at both Adnan and looking at Don, how do you wind up on a Adnan? And the detective says, well, we didn't get a phone call on the on. Done. The tip, right? Yeah, the tip. That they believe that that was sort of the thing that pushed them towards looking deeper into Adnan. Not necessarily saying, okay, we're not looking at Don anymore, but because when they start looking at Adnan, things apparently fall into place. Right. Jay? Well, maybe he's, there's yeah. a question there. Something falls into place yes. where they're like, okay, now we have enough to make an arrest and... So now we're not interested in other people. Now, for those of you on the panel... Which also leaves just sort of the the passing thought that if somebody had called and left a thing about Don, Mm. that they might have swung the other way and started putting, you know, now it's 51% towards Don. Who knows? Well, the the interesting thing about the tip, and this is something that, again, was discussed exhaustively on Undisclosed, which is how I know it, uh, and I may not get the details exactly right, but the general story around the tip is... The, uh, whoever took the call made the note that it was an Asian-sounding man. The Asian-sounding man, it's like they, they didn't identify, like, what kind of Asian-sounding man? Are you talking Far East? Like, what kind of Asian-sounding man? And there is a lot of interesting stuff around whether it was someone who knew Adnan who was saying, somebody I know did this, or if it was a member of Hayes' family accusing Adnan because they had read it in her diary that they had been dating and they or or they had known about the relationship there's a lot of ambiguity about who could have left that tip who could have made that call there's just some intrigue that's there. why they're anonymous tips right but there's some intrigue there around that and mm-hmm. that because that the tip is what kicked off the looking at Adnan and where it came from is important because if you believe the Jay stuff if you believe that Jay was involved that Adnan did it and knew something then it makes sense that maybe someone who knew Adnan would give that tip if that tip came from outside Adnan's sphere, if it came from somebody who was perhaps related to Hay, didn't even know Adnan, but who just basically called and said, like, there's this guy you should look at, then they put together a thing based on something that wasn't evidentiary. It was, it was somebody just calling with a, a tip. You know what I mean? So it's an interesting kind of like piece of the puzzle. Laura, what do you think of all this Don stuff? And what do you think of, you know, the other person who we suddenly see, like we've never seen a picture of before, our friend Jay Wilds? We see him in high school all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dennis Rodman. Yeah. No, it was um, the Don part was really interesting because I, you know, had this different image in my mind. And then we saw what he looked like when they were dating. 
I guess I don't remember the Camaro part. Um, that was an interesting little tidbit. <laughs> but the scene where they went to see him, wherever he was, North Carolina or South Carolina, it just so, sort of sad to me because I just felt like he's like a total disaster. He's like disabled. He's going to be dying soon. He's, I mean, it was just kind of like a train wreck to watch. You're like, ugh. But at the same time, there is something interesting about why wasn't this pursued more at the time, like you said, and why the focus did shift to Adnan. But the J part was really interesting because I, you know, I liked getting again that sort of context now from the friends and seeing the friends and seeing the pictures because you always imagine it in your head, totally different than it actually is in real life, and 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 where he fit into that social sphere of the high school in terms of the kids that were the super smart kids that were on this track with the special program but seeing seeing how he fit into that and also seeing you know pictures of his pretty girlfriend and Stephanie uh yes Stephanie I I, I don't know uh, you know that that's going to be interesting to see as it goes forward um the Don thing I don't know if we're going to be seeing Don again because it didn't look like he was exactly inviting them in his house um but <laughs> you never know you never know they did that long lens film like they did in Laguna Beach and he was like I was like yeah, yeah like somebody got to be the surveillance person on the other side of the street and tape it. That must have been exciting. <laughs> must have been. <laughs> sure must have been. Um, you know, the thing, the thing about the friend, the group stuff, you know, getting Aisha and getting Debbie and, ha- and having all those like face to face. I mean, these were characters that were in Serial and Krista and, and having these protracted interviews with them where they first sort of paint what the relationship looked like and what their high school social circle looked like and all that stuff. And then I think about scenes that were in Serial that just feel very different when you get these longer interviews with these people who were kids at the time. One of the scenes that, you know, stuck out in Serial was was a Krista's birthday party, which happened like a couple of days after Heyman Lee went missing. And the fact that like Adnan showed up there. They had all these photos of all the with kids. Jay at and the Stephanie. Party, yeah. And it made it seem like if he was guilty, that is like a cold ass thing to do. Like go to a be partying when your friend's missing. But then when you actually hear them talk about it and see the photos of it. It kind of makes sense. They they actually all believe like she might show up to this. Maybe she's just off doing something and she's that she would never miss this. Like she would show up. All of a sudden it's like a different story that Adnan was there. Much more believable, much more yeah. Like he came off better in this, I think. I think he did too. I actually made a note of that. I felt like I felt much more, I don't want to say sympathetic, but I just felt like the way that he was portrayed was much more positive. It was in a much more positive light. Not to say that it wasn't positive in Serial, but in this, I actually was like, he was a really good kid in high school. Like, I, I guess I didn't have quite that same sense of what a good kid he was in high school until this documentary. Well, Serial would talk about how people said he was a good kid and then they cast doubt on it in Serial. And the yeah. thing that really struck me with this interviews with him in jail, Kevin, is that he gave details about things that happened, like the prom. He talked about Hayes' abuse mm-hmm. and how she told him. And then they would go to the friends and they would corroborate everything he said. The pictures of the... Like, you think about his memories of the prom. He remembered exactly what Hayes' dress looked like. Yep. And the crown matched her dress. Like, the crown had, like, a blue top. Someone asked me, was she the queen? And I just immediately thought of it. I said, no, she's my queen, though. And Hayes was like, oh. And I was like, thank God I said something smart right for once. <laughs> He had all of these details down pat, which just seemed very authentic in this because you could see it. So this is sort of what I think you might interpret in the, just the audio story as like a BS factor. 
got kind of cleared away by the corroboration of the friends, but also the visuals. I, I think that the good thing that this does is it pulls together a lot of the disparate facts and disparate characters that we listen to in Serial and had to put together just with the sound and not with the visuals. And I think that that's one thing that the visuals help us do. And it also kind of encapsulates and puts some stuff together. So in that hour, we, we start, I certainly felt like we got about three episodes of yeah, serial as far as the backstory. Yeah. It, it ends up being, you know, I think a lot easier to understand like what was what was going on in the first place because of the way it was presented here. And they very efficiently dispense with the whole serial as a podcast phenomenon thing. That whole scene is like super quick. Which I loved. I love that they didn't dwell on that. Mm -hmm. They were just like, this happened, and now everybody knows about it, and let's move on and tell you the story again. So, uh, Toby, question for you. We've seen some very bad versions of this and other true crime things we've watched, notably the Jean Benet Ramsey documentary that we watched. But the documentarians do hire professional investigators to look at stuff. And we see Robbie go to their office in New York, and they seem like real investigators. They don't seem like they're going to have a 10-year-old boy come out and... Hit, hit a pineapple, hit or, a pineapple yeah. with a hammer or whatever. Um, what do you think of that, the idea of this, Toby, that like the filmmakers, you know, this was obviously, uh, this is the filmmaker who made West Memphis 3. This is like an Academy Award nominated or winning filmmaker. And as part of this documentary and like turning over this case again, they decided to do another investigation. Is that make you worried or do you like it? I'm just curious to what you think about that. Oh, no, I think it's good. I mean, it's it's investigative reporting, right? So they got some investigators to help them. <laughs> yeah, true. So that's fine. I mean, I, I've, I've got no problem with that. I mean, I think, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's a matter of what are you going to put out there for people to consume? You know, what decisions do you make about the information that you turn up? I feel like I've been like negative about this. I, th- I thought this was really interesting and really good. And I'm psyched to watch the next three episodes. And and part of the reason why I'm enthusiastic about that is because there's the, pro- you know, this is not the promise, but there's there's the potential for there to be new information or new insight or a new way of looking at it or something like it seems like it'd be kind of crazy to go to all this effort if nothing comes out of it I, I think that's good you know you get the best people you can to help you when you're making your your product right so, so why not legit people who are not going to make a child stand in front of a mannequin with a hammer <laughs> let's not jump the gun on that one <laughs> that's true. i don't want to like you too optimistic all right let's do what we do we are not uh, through with this series so i'm not comfortable doing the thumbs up or thumbs down full review but what i would like to do is take a little temperature of the panel right now after episode one of the case against adan sayed i'd like to pull the panel letter grade for episode one forbidden love lara bricker what grade do you give this episode? I'm going to go with A. I mean, this it was great. I, I knew the story. I knew the people. I really liked seeing the people in person. I saw people and heard from people we didn't hear from in Serial. I loved seeing the footage of all the places. And it was just, it had just such a different feel than other TV documentaries that we've watched about this case. It was just um, really well put together. Toby, what about you? Letter grade for Forbidden Love, episode one of The Case Against Adnan Syed. Well, I kind of feel like, you know, in the Olympics when like the first figure skaters go out there and they never get like really good marks because mm. they want to leave some room for, for people to do better. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about this. So I'll give it like a B plus because I'm expecting it to be better as it goes on. He's the but fucking it's, it's Russian really judge. good. No, he's not. <laughs> yeah. hey, as long as he's consistent in his grading. It's you know? true. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. But, but I think, you know, it, it was it was a good first episode. But I think, you know, the best of these have payoffs as you go along. Right. Correct. So 
I don't want to give it an A and then give stuff that's better another A. Mm. Well, I am You don't not, have that problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that problem. I am only going to grade this on its merits alone because I don't know what's going to happen and I can't predict that. I am giving this an A. I loved watching it. I had no temptation to look at my cell phone for a minute the entire time I watched it, which is a very high bar for me. And it wasn't just because somebody I know was on HBO, which, holy shit, that's still super cool in a weird way. I just think it's super well done. They, they've they made more, put more meat on the bone of this story, I think, than Serial did, which I thought was going to be impossible. And I really, really, and I've read Robbie's book, and there's more meat on the bone in this than there is in the book because it has more perspectives. I really, really liked it. I give this first episode an A. What about you, Kevin? I'm also going to go with an A. I thought it did a great job of telling the backstory, reminding us, and also introducing the story to people who may only know of Serial and have not listened to it because they can't figure out how to download a a podcast, but (laughs) they do know that there's some buzz about it. There was no barrier to entry, and I think that they did a really great job. I think that the next episode, and and I don't know if the rest, certainly they've set it up so now that they can go into sort of, uh, here's the investigation, and here's a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't know. Mm. So I th- I predict episode two will be very different from episode one. I haven't seen it yet, but that's my guess. But I am also very excited to see it and see, you know, again, see some of the folks that we know, like Mr. Beans yes. you know, making this cameo. I was, Mr. Beans is adorable, is he not, Kevin? You're not even a cat person, but you like Mr. I Beans. I know, but I was I was looking around that. It's funny because then they, they pull, I see the scene where they, they she pulls into the driveway. I'm like, that's Robbie's neighborhood. That's are right. They, are they going to her house? <laughs> going to the house? And, but it was before she moved in because the yeah, house was empty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was before the fire alarm, the yes. smoke detector kept going off and she didn't know how to fix it. Yes. Uh, but I was also looking for Mr. Beans. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, moving on. 
Over two nights, audiences were gripped by the powerful documentary Leaving Neverland on HBO. It details years of abuse alleged by two men who were boys at the time at the hands of pop superstar Michael Jackson. Director Dan Reed zooms in on how Jackson played on Wade Robson and James Safechuck's hero worship and dreams of stardom to facilitate Michael Jackson's alleged abuse. Leaving Neverland leaves us heartbroken for the victims, exasperated with their parents, and disturbed disturbed by an army of employees and fans who have enabled the crimes even after his death. Everybody wanted to meet Michael or be with Michael. And then he likes you. I was seven years old. Michael asked, do you and the family want to come to Neverland? We drive in and forget about all your problems. You were in Neverland. It was a fantasy. The days were filled with magical childhood adventure experiences. Playing tag, watching movies, eating junk food, anything you could ever want as a child. It's like hanging out with a friend that's more your age. Now, a couple of things I want to mention. This is disturbing stuff, Leaving Neverland. So if you are triggered by this type of content and you don't want to hear us talk about it, totally understandable. Look at the time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. And if you also do not want spoilers for the documentary, if you haven't watched it yet, you can also look at that time code in the show notes. So one of the things that I want to talk about about this documentary is I just want to get it out of the way. I think it's an important thing to just establish. I believed these two men 100%. Not a Mm -hmm. single fiber of me questioned any single aspect of their accounts of their alleged abuse at the hands of Michael Jackson. Laura, are you same place I am or a different place? No, I'm I'm right there. And I I mean, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of Twitter, but um, yeah, I totally believe them. I believe that the consistencies um, were so similar. It was just absolutely, I mean, it, it just seemed so credible in terms of the same thing happened to both of them. And then, I mean, not to, you know, the other boys that took their places at various points, it seemed just like, I mean, like an MO at that point. So regardless whether they uh, admitted or or come out about what may or may not have happened, it just seemed so credible to me. Toby, what about you? Are you on the side of uh, fully believing these guys or do you have another opinion about that? Uh, No, I found them completely credible. As a matter of fact, I was was on Twitter and Sarah Bunting made some comment about how there were people who were sort of impeaching them. Like, I don't even know what that would look like. But, oh, don't, don't look. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> don't I, do I, I really don't want to. I, I, I mean, I found them, I, I found them very believable, clearly traumatized. There was no reason to watch that and, and think that they were, they were making it up. I completely agree with all of you. They were very credible. I mean, they really spoke their truth and, you know, one of the things that I found, you know, so so convincing was the way that they spoke. They really spoke in, in a quasi-clinical way, like if you are in therapy mm. and talking about it, it's matter of fact with the emotion sort of right under the surface, which is different than somebody who's spinning bullshit. Right. Well, I will say there is an orchestrated, coordinated campaign to discredit these two men that exist that's real they can suck a lemon and there's also just a bunch of people who for some reason 
are more of a fan of Michael Jackson than they are willing to consider an alternate story about him. And I have read all of the reasons why people think that these two guys are lying. I, In case anybody is tempted to at me or email me about any of those things, I have read all of that. I know what Ray Ray Robson said in court. I know about his approaching Jackson later to try to do some business dealings. I know about Safe Chuck's uh, relationship with Jackson after the episode. I know all about all of it. I know about the fact that they denied it for years. I know about all of it. I do not care. It is not relevant because I think what this documentary does so well is it illustrates what sexual abuse is for so many kids, which in the moment when they're kids, it's something that they are groomed to enjoy and want and think is love. And that is exactly the experience that that these boys talk about and these men talk about as boys when they talk about for for instance that the grooming he, is a really that he now yeah. has a new kid and I was heartbroken like when Wade Robson talks about coming over from Australia and that Michael Jackson all of a sudden has like a new Australian kid and being heartbroken and so sad that he was no longer the main boy and it's like this is a person who is talking about horrific sexual abuse at the hands of an adult and was just talking about his feelings of heartbreak at being replaced, that speaks to the grooming and that explains away all of that contradictory behavior. It explains away all of it. I think it also, it also demonstrates what a powerful documentary it was because I know I felt this, you said the same thing. When he said that, for a, for a tiny moment- We're sad for him. You're like, oh, he got tossed aside and just that was not cool. And then you realize, wait a minute- the child molester is no longer going to molest him. That's actually a really good thing. Right. But you feel for him because it, it is so complicated. Correct. And that children don't, right, children don't have the words. Right. To describe what's going on to them. They, somebody tells them this is love and they, right, and they 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 do have But it feels like love feeling. to them. Yes. That's what they've been taught. Right. Like Michael Jackson taught that. He was seven years old. That's right. He yeah. was seven years old. He was a baby. Yeah. And he did a great job yeah. also explaining- Letting you know, telling you to get the visual that he was a seven-year-old boy having these sexual acts with a grown man. You know, in terms of the way that the children were groomed and the level of awareness, I feel like you know it was also happening in a time where you know I know probably with you guys when your kids were going through elementary school. I mean, they had like the puppet lady come in and do the little puppet show about what was a good touch and what was a bad touch, and I don't feel like that sort of education necessarily happened in the schools for kids at that age during that time period. So that the awareness was not there for them that this was not okay because their parents thought it was okay. Right. Well, they thought that the relationship well, was okay. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I'll, I, I will say just for one bit of context, I don't know if you guys remember this. In the 1980s, early 1980s, there was a movie on TV that I remember being played like as an after school special, but I actually think it was like an evening movie. It was called Something About Amelia. Amelia with Ted Danson. And Glenn Close. Yes. And it was about a girl named Amelia who was sexually abused by her father. And the whole movie is about how the, she accuses him and no one believes her. And then, you know, they do believe her and it's a whole thing. Do you know how that movie ends? I do. How does the movie end? They're all sitting around the dinner table. Yes. And I guess it's kind of like... The family gets back they're together. together like, it's a we'll, reconciliation. We'll get through it. It's a reconciliation. Yeah. Is how the movie ends. That was the prevailing cultural message around sexual molestation and abuse when around the same time period it was... You know, don't talk about it. It is like we're all back. You know, it, it was it's crazy. It's a crazy time. Um, 
one of the other things I want to mention is, you know, some of the criticism of this documentary is its one-sidedness. You know, there's nobody from Jackson's camp, nobody from nobody contradicting the stories the boys are telling in the documentary at all. And people say that's not fair. It's not giving a chance to respond. What do you think about the one sidedness of the documentary, Kevin? Does it matter? I don't think so. I mean, I think it actually did itself a, a favor of not doing the sort of perfunctory. Here's five minutes explaining who Michael Jackson was and his background. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think we, we know that it's not. Michael Jackson's story. It's it's Wade and James's story. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. What about you, Toby? Do you think that this benefits or uh, it takes away from it that it's so one-sided? You want to have like somebody on there to get on the case of people who are abused, sexually abused as children? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think you'd have a very hard time doing that in a way that was just not awful. Yeah, I, I, I can't I can't picture it. I can't I, I can't picture it. Don't you also think that Michael Jackson has had enough time? Yeah, that's what I, I mean. Michael Jackson, I mean, all in all of his supporters, they have had plenty of time to refute this, to talk about it, to defend him, to I mean, you saw the clip that, that made me like lose my shit when I was at Mark Garagos, his attorney. Yeah. Was like Ugh, when, when the boy with guy. cancer was accusing him, and he was like, "You come for us, we'll get you." And he's going, and I'm like, "You are talking about a fucking little kid who mm. is sick, who came forward, and you are out in public threatening him like that." I mean, that was fucking ridiculous. That made me so angry. I'm, so, I mean, just absolute. So you know what? They've had their time in the spotlight, and and I think at this point. These two men have had enough time to, you know, process this. Clearly, they've had professional help, and it's time for them to have their say and to tell what happened. And and there were times where I was like, boy, I don't. This is so detailed and so graphic in the beginning. Like, what what is this documentary gaining from having this level of detail? Which was, I mean, I was like physically nauseous watching some parts of this. Like, I just sat there like, oh, I can't believe I'm watching this. But I think that is what lent the credibility to this whole. I mean, there were other, but that really just illustrated how horrific this was on because so who many would levels. tell the story who would tell that who, story who would make up something like that i mean it was just so horrific and nauseating to listen to knowing that these were children that that at the time didn't know they they didn't re- recognize what a horrible situation they were in it was just awful right now, Toby, uh, you know, a big conversation around this documentary is the role of the boys' families in the abuse, the moms in particular, because their moms are both on camera for a great deal of it. And there is a really interesting piece in Slate that I would recommend people read if they have, you know, if their gut instinct is to just vilify the moms because of the way they delivered their story documentaries. Read the Slate piece because they talk about how the film was made which sheds a lot of light on that and how, you know, the, the the way the questions were asked off camera was designed for the moms to relive the happy times uh, so that they could get the viewer to understand better what it felt like when, for instance, uh, James' mom was saying, like, Michael Jackson's like a son, like him coming to our house was just so exciting. And we looked around a little suburban house and he was just there and it was so wonderful. And I think that, you know, it's easy to say, you know, any parent would have known, any parent would have whatever. But there is some veracity to that, potentially. There's a lot going on there. And I would just love your thoughts generally on 
what you think the role of the role of the parents, how it was portrayed in the documentary, just what your thoughts are on that generally, because I think it's one of the most interesting facets of this story. I mean, I don't think you can really generalize, right? Because I think there's two very different things that are going on. One is the Australian mother, Wade's mother. Part of it is that she sees it as an opportunity for her son to become famous. Mm. And that's the reason why they moved to America and all this stuff, which is not to, and I'm not implying that that was some kind of deal she was making was that the sexual abuse for fame. But I think that that was what sort of motivated her to try and you know, prolong this relationship. Whereas James's parents, and I, and I think James's father was involved too, it was more that sort of, this is the most famous guy in the entire world who wants to hang out with our son for right. some reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was. Like, he was the most famous guy in the world. Yep. He was the biggest star in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't even think there's anybody as famous now as he was at the time that TPP was famous. I can't, I mean, you could say like Beyonce, maybe, but no. no Michael Jackson no. was the most famous no. person in the world. Period. And I just think, you know, if I was going to defend the parents, I mean, I think that just warps things, you know? I think it's just really hard. And plus, he's just so freaking strange that he's super famous and he's super strange. And it's probably hard to evaluate what his deal is as compared to like a normal guy who you might know from work or something like that. So I think that probably made some of the decision making harder. That being said, like his his whole thing about basically being an adult child, even when it was happening at the time before all this sex stuff came out, it just seems so off. Hmm. That would be where my huge red flags would be, you know, before even like I wanted him to sleep in my bed and I want to be able to lock like five doors in between us and, you know, all this stuff. He's either super disturbed or he's kind of full of it. Because I don't think that's the way it works. Like, I don't think that people who are robbed of their childhood then, like, aren't able to mature and then try and live out their childhood again in, like, their 30s. Like, I don't think you want to play with dolls and stuff and hang out with eight-year-olds when you're 38 or whatever he was just because, you know, you're a pop star when you're a kid. Like, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. And if that's really the way it is, it seems like he's got some issues that need to be taken care of and not by your child. Right. You know, it's weird. Like, I I, I kind of feel some sympathy, especially for the American parents. Mm. You know, clearly it's easy to criticize them and clearly they should have done some things differently or whatever. But it's such a it's a situation that just seems like unlike any other that it would kind of mess with your decision making. I mean, that was one of the things I kept thinking about as I was watching this is that, you know, somebody must have done this to him when he was a child because, you know, that's how this happens. There's this cycle of abuse. And it's like he didn't just start doing this to multiple boys because, like you said, he he was, you know, pushed into singing when he was so young and he didn't have a childhood. Somebody must have done something to him because it just, where where did this cycle begin? And is that, you know, is that what ultimately led him to do this when he was an adult? That was something I kept returning to is like, it was, hor- it was nauseating to watch. It was, it was so awful. I felt so bad for these boys. But at the same time, I just thought, 
some something created this. Something made him uh, go down this road, and and that's the part I I tried to go back to when I was trying to not just condemn everybody involved in this. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think the fact that Jackson was abused—I don't know about sexually, but physically abused—is well documented. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Jackson, the Jackson Five boys, and Janet Jackson's father was an abusive. Man, and it's easy to imagine scenarios where different kinds of use might play out. We don't know. The thing that I will say about Michael Jackson and his M.O. is that that whole thing where he's basically like, I love children. It's like the best possible, most unbelievably effective disguise for a serial pedophile because it's so flagrant. He's built his whole life to bring children around him and a person who is wondering whether he's a child molester would think, well, that can't possibly be it because he's showing us that he just wants to be around Mm -hmm. kids all the time. Like it's an incredibly effective disguise. And I think this really played into the grooming of the families because you hear Michael Jackson is calling their kids on the phone constantly. And if somebody is molesting your kid in secret, are they going to call them constantly when you're home? Send and them, like send them faxes. Send them faxes that you can read. Bring you along on trips. Like yeah. I think the grooming was masterful. I think it's very easy to Monday morning quarterback and say I would never, I would never, I would never. But let me just tell you like a very quick specific story that I was thinking about a lot. I know one famous person, you know, I know like some people who are in podcasting, but I know one actual famous person. Mm -hmm. And I met that famous person through somebody else. And my son, Henry, was with me when I met this very famous person. And he's wonderful and so sweet. And I have not intimating anything creepy about him. And I really hesitate to say his name, even though you guys probably know who it is. But he's like wonderful and generous and great in every way. And I had my son with me when we met, and he and my son got into a conversation about how my son was super interested in filmmaking. And that's where it ended. That's where the real life story ends. And that's just like, let's leave it there because he's a wonderful guy. But I was watching this documentary and I was thinking, what if this super famous person had said in the course of this conversation, you know what? I'm like running like a, a teen filmmaking workshop this summer. You should fly your son out. Like he should spend the summer in this program. Like he'd probably be really great for him. I will tell you, this person is so famous and so nice, I probably would have like done it or thought about doing it because it would never have occurred to me, even in 2017 or whatever year this was, that I'd be sending my son off to some like sex trap. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Larry Nasser. Yes, exactly. I, I'm yeah. think that was exactly yeah. the right comparison that I was thinking about. It's exactly right, Toby. But there's, there's a, like a legitimate path where you could say it's reasonable that you would want to encourage and have an opportunity for your son to do this. Right. But there's a there's a meridian on that path that it's like, okay, now it crosses into maybe something suspicious right. and definitely something dangerous. And this went way beyond yeah. that. And it they the parents should have seen that. But it's about the grooming that pulled them all in. And there's it's weird to say, but there is a really important parallel between this documentary and another one that we saw, Abducted in Plain Sight, mm. which is just like the yeah. this is completely ridiculous. Yeah. But the idea that the bad actor not only targets the child. But the entire family, right. in order to create an ecosystem in which they can freely move in and out and have 
you know, their way with the child. Well, in the abducted in plain sight, it was the same thing where you're like, how can these parents like he took her off? They went to Mexico. They got Mm -hmm. married. And then the next thing you know, he's sleeping over and you're like. What? Like, because he was so masterful at manipulating And he wasn't even famous. Ho- he was not the most famous it, person in no. the entire right, world. Right. But he manipulated the whole family. You know, the mom and the dad, they were all in on, you know, both because he like was having sexual relationships with all of them, which wasn't what was happening in Michael Jackson's case. But it was that same like level of manipulation. And but don't you believe if was- he wanted to, if Michael Jackson wanted to? He could oh, have yeah. had everybody in that family, be- just because he's so great. And plus, you know, I don't know if mo money, mo problems is the thing, but certainly mo money, more intense problems. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, <laughs> because a poor guy can get drunk, but a rich guy can like be leaving Las Vegas drunk, right? right. So this is he has just so much money and power and fame and, and charisma and protection, right? That it's impossible to to see how it could not have happened. He built a 2700 acre sex trap. Like when he describes yeah. the different places like that were built on that property that were designed to be able to molest kids and so that he could hear people coming and there were so, it is insane. And I, I got into this Neverland like real estate rabbit hole because it's for sale again now. And when you look at Neverland, the original ranch, it actually is this very beautiful old money ranch, not super ostentatious until Michael Jackson bought it and turned it into a 2,700 acre sex trap, you know, molestation trap. It It's like it's understated. It's gorgeous. And he built these paths so he could, like, take kids on walks. He built secret buildings out. He built outbuildings so the parents would have to sleep in separate quarters. Like, he built it for this. Do you think he didn't build that with his own hands? Like, somebody was there working on it. He had to hire an architect. He had to, like, just the influence you have to have. I need to have a secret closet inside my closet. Yeah. Freaking bananas. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our audience know, uh, should they check out Leaving Neverland on HBO? Very difficult documentary, uh, but likely an important one that will be remembered for a long time. Laura Bricker, what do you say? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Leaving Neverland on HBO? So I say thumbs up. And I don't say that because it's something I actually really wanted to watch. It wasn't something that was pleasant to watch, but it was very well done. And I think it was a very important story to be told. And I think... It's something that if you can get through it, you know, get through it because it's just horrific. And it was done in, you know, a tasteful way with the victims. And I don't know. I mean, I I haven't really recovered from watching it. And I watched it, I don't know how many days ago at this point. But it was just, it's something that will sort of stay with you when you're done. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a, I agree with Laura. And I think it's sort of a different kind of thumbs up or thumbs down and that it's like sort of unquestionably, you know, well done. You know, it's, it's really, it's brutal, you know, it's a brutal watch and I'm not so sure that I'm glad I saw it. So I, I, there's like trigger warnings, like there should be a trigger warning every five minutes. Right. With all that being said, it's the subject matter really. And so it's tough, but I, you know, I guess I give it a thumbs up. But again, like I'm not sure that I'm feel that I'm glad that I'm watched it. Right. That's the best I can do. What about you, Kevin? It's rough emotionally to watch this. I mean, two nights afterwards, I had trouble sleeping. This just kept like coming back in my head. Uh, the story of these guys. It just you know a story about how absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
There are not a lot of billionaire pedophiles out there. So is it a story that translates to many other situations? It does. It does. You, you don't have to be a billionaire with an entourage and, as you say, Rebecca, a 1,600-acre pedophile trap mm. in the desert. There are, there are aspects of this story and this behavior which permeate crimes that are happening today. It was, again, uh, a tough thing, but uh, I think it's, uh, for many people, they need to see it. So I'm a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up, too. I thought it was very powerful. I find uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robson really compelling characters to be telling the story. I've actually, you know, familiar with Wade Robson's work. I remember his show, The Wade Robson Project at MTV. He's an incredibly, incredibly talented dancer. And I'm really happy the documentary sort of showed other aspects of these men's lives other than their you know, talking right to the camera. I, like you, Kevin, think it is not just an important watch for like what happened in this instance. The whole concept with uh, victims who quote unquote lie about what happened to them and then change their story. This documentary does such a thorough and beautiful job dissecting how that can happen, especially with victims of childhood sexual abuse. They didn't lie and change their story. They lied and they stopped lying. They lied for a reason. They didn't reason. change their story. And the reason yeah, right. was not to for personal yep. gain. The reason was because they didn't know it wasn't doing something good. Yep. And it's so important that not just parents, but that anybody watches this. It just gives you a new look into this type of story. So I'm a big thumbs up. It is very disturbing and in some ways really beautiful and in some ways just difficult. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, week. the week. It was an unappetizing scene in Plastow, New Hampshire. <laughs> Girl Scouts selling their cookies outside a supermarket were confronted by an incoherent man swearing, swinging a pole and flexing his muscles. Police came and had to both tase and pepper spray the man. When they stuck him in the car, he thrashed so much that the cruiser started shaking. Do you think all this violence would deter those Girl Scouts from selling their cookies? 
Hell no. Not when they just drew the biggest crowd of the day. (laughs) These Girl Scouts started pushing Thin Mints and Samoas like nobody's business. They even tried to get the cops to buy some tagalongs and do-si-dos before they cleared the scene. (laughs) So, panel, this is a critical question that I've been debating a lot in real life and on social media lately. Laura Bricker, which Girl Scout cookie flavor would you be willing to get tased for? It's going to be the Samoas, Rebecca. Um, The second place is Thin Mints, but Samoas (laughs) um, are where it's at, especially since some other Girl Scouts recently doctored up the Samoa box. I don't know if you saw that. With the guy from Aquaman, so Momoa, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, Momoa Samoas. <laughs> they did. They put his picture on the boxes. So yeah. What about you, Toby Ball? What flavor Girl Scout cookie would you be willing to get tased for? Uh, you know, I I realize this makes me like a total outgroup, but uh, the trefoils. Oh God, wrong answer, What's Toby. Those ones? It's the plain shortbread ones. He, it's oh. the shortbreads. <laughs> no, it's a it's it's an acquired taste okay. and an acquired texture. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What Girl Scout cookie flavor would you be willing to be tased for? None of them. Why not? To be tased? <laughs> Fuck that noise. <laughs> Wrong answer. I get a cookie anywhere. Why would I have to be tased? Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can get a question. mint on any fucking hotel pillow in the world. Thank you, you very are, much. Wrong answer, wrong answer, wrong answer. The only- I do like tag-alongs, though. You like tag-alongs? You have something in common with my social media nemesis, Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've been following that. I was like- Rebecca's been tweeting with Monica Lewinsky repeatedly. Yes. Monica Lewinsky and I, by the way, I'm sure she has no idea who I am, but we do she have a- She tweeted once and you tweeted 12 times. We have a, no, we have a we have a, a protracted Twitter relationship where occasionally things crop up and we seem to sort of like really get up be on the same page about things mostly. And like, she loves tagalongs and I think anyone who does not answer Thin Mints is a monster. A super duper monster. Wow. Oh. Yes. Sorry. What's a tag along? The peanut butter one. They're good. I oh, I like those. You know, in oh, different like parts like of the country, they are the same cookies are labeled different things. Yes. Peanut butter patties mm-hmm. are also known as tag along. Yes. Dozy does. Yep. Or that peanut butter sandwich one. Yeah. A different yeah. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't peanut like butter patties. Ones. Yeah. Is that kind of like anti-Irish? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, a uh, fun fact, Girl Scout cookies are made in different bakeries around the country that are regional, and they even have different pricing around the country. Uh, and oh. just so you know, Thin Mints are now, the Girl Scout cookies in New Hampshire are now $5, yeah. and I will still go to town for those damn Thin Mints. is the only acceptable answer. The only acceptable answer. Sorry, Monica Lewinsky. I love you and admire you, but you are wrong on this. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong. <sighs> season three of Slow Burn. <laughs> Cookie oh, <my>. season. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura Brigger, before we wrap up the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, so we, we don't have a cat of the week. We have another animal. And usually I do select from one of our listeners, but I have been infatuated with this video that I saw this week of Pig Casso. Pig Casso. Um, pig Casso. The pig protege went from being on the butcher's block to becoming a world-class painter. Wow. And that is why she is named Pig Casso. So she was safe. She was headed to be, you know, chopped up in 2016, rescued by the Farm Sanctuary in Cape Town, South Africa. 
Shortly after she was rescued, her caretakers gave her some toys and objects to play with, and she immediately took a liking to a set of paintbrushes. When her rescuer set out some non-toxic paints and canvases, Picasso became a very proficient painter. Now, here's the part that is amazing. Her artwork has been sold. She has raised $145,000 towards the animal sanctuary with her Picasso originals. So I will post a video because it's kind of mesmerizing to see Picasso at work. (laughs) All right. Well, Laura Bricker, people want to send you other animals to be contenders for cat slash dog slash pig slash iguana slash fish slash monkey slash whatever of the week. How can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you to commiserate over your love of trefoils. If they are also fellow trefoil lovers, how can they find you on Twitter? All three of you can find me at <laughs> Toby Ball NH. I will be tell you, Toby, the Girl Scout who sold me my Girl Scout cookies told me, little Sylvie <laughs> told me that her favorite flavor is also trefoils. Just so you know, you're not alone. (laughs) Kevin Flynn, people want to reach out to you. How can they find you on Twitter? Um, At some pig. (laughs) That's a Charlotte (laughs) Webb reference, bitches. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb And this little show, by the way, is now on Instagram at Crime Writers On. So if you love the grams, come follow us there. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community on our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We did a little Facebook Live for them before we recorded the show tonight. It's super fun there. The theme song for this podcast was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. And you can support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and get all sorts of cool stuff, including the Crime Writers on After Show, which is available right now. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where I hoard all of the Thin Mints. On behalf of the Crime Writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Do you want to see you do any of your famous impressions while doing this Facebook Live? Suki, I will not apologize. <laughs> Can't do it. So you can see yourself. Hey, no, I'm not looking. I'm not looking. <laughs> okay, okay. My love for you is strong over the centuries. I will not. <laughs> you're like that. I can't hear you. You can't do it. I will not apologize for loving you, Suki. <laughs> can you do your Bill Rankin, like with the face? Hi, Suki. I'm sorry I'm a vampire now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? Do you know what a coffin is? It's where I sleep. (laughs) I'm just so nice. (laughs) He is so nice. So nice. Do you know what a werewolf is? (laughs) I don't like werewolves. When the sun comes up, I have to go to bed. That's different from you. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.